Hello everyone. Before we start today's podcast, some exciting news for you. You can experience the Inside Politics podcast live in Dublin on May 16th when Hugh Linehan, Jennifer Bray and I will be joined by Cliff Young of Ipsos, one of America's top pollsters, to talk about the US election, our own local and European elections and much more. It's a breakfast event kicking off at 8am in Trinity College. If you'd like to attend, you can get tickets at irishtimes.com forward slash events. That's irishtimes.com forward slash events. I hope we see lots of you there. It's Wednesday, June the 9th, and you're very welcome to the Inside Politics podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Hugh Linehan. It is now five months since the publication of the final report of the commission established by the state to investigate the treatment of women and children in Irish mother and baby homes over the course of most of the 20th century. Since then, controversy has continued over the methodology of the report, its treatment of witness statements by survivors of the system, and about the conclusions it reached on the culpability of church and state for what happened to those women and children. There have been calls from the start for the three members of the Commission to engage publicly with some of these questions, something they have not done until last week when one of those members, Professor Mary Daly, took part in an academic seminar on the subject held by Oxford University. Professor Daly's participation in that event and subsequent reports of what she said at that seminar have led to renewed calls for the Commission members to agree to come before an Oireachtas committee to answer questions. And in a little while, I'm going to be joined by Jennifer Bray, who attended that seminar, and by our own political editor, Pat Lee to discuss those political elements. But also last week, the Dublin Review magazine published a long and detailed essay by the distinguished archivist Katrina Crow on the commission, its processes and its final report. It is an absolutely fascinating read, which the Dublin Review has made free to access on its website. And I'd encourage everybody to have a read of it. Katrina Crow joins me now. Hi, Katrina. Hello, Hugh. I suppose I'd like to start, as you do in the piece, if possible, with the story of Caroline O'Connor. But before you tell us her story, maybe you could tell us about the difference between the confidential committee with which she engaged and the investigation committee, because it's really rather confusing. Okay, well, the investigation committee is the judicial investigative committee of the Commission of Inquiry into Mother and Baby Homes. Uh, If you gave testimony to that, you were subject to cross-examination, that they had the power to compel documents, etc., much more like an actual court setting than the Confidential Committee. The Confidential Committee probably began with good intentions as a place where people could recount their experiences, and I, I use that term advisedly. Let us not continue to talk about people telling their stories They're recounting their experiences, and that's a different thing. Uh, Without the pressure of possible cross-examination and legal representation being required and all the rest of it. But um, what ended up being the case was that 550 people gave uh, testimony to the Confidential Committee. 64 survivors spoke to the Investigation Committee. It is still mysterious as to why so few people were invited to speak to the Investigation Committee. Uh, They were certainly not, it wasn't advertised, there was nothing on the website of the Commission about it. Whenever anybody attempted to come and talk to the Commission, they were automatically directed to the Confidential Committee. That is one of the questions that needs to be cleared up by the commissioners or some spokesperson on their behalf if they don't wish to speak. These these are serious questions of process that need to be answered. So what you end up with is, uh, uh, at at the best, it would have been a very respectful recounting of the experiences of 550 people, 
properly transcribed, properly edited in consultation with them, which is what was done in the Northern Ireland academic study of mother and baby homes. They had a very clear methodology and process for dealing with survivors. Instead, what happened was uh, people came in good faith and gave their testimony. In Caroline's case, the woman that so bravely gave me her uh, her material. Um, she came in good faith to tell a long and tragic story, ultimately a very empowering story because of how she's come through it, uh, and assumed that what would happen would be that that, that would be transcribed um, and that she would get a copy of that transcript. Uh, what in fact was happening was the people who were interviewing her had a set of about 200 questions, mainly sociological questions like education and status, uh, religion, place of birth, all those kinds of demographic details. She wasn't told about that, nor were any of the other survivors told about it. They went in thinking this was going to be a permanent record of what happened in 20th century Ireland, and they were contributing to it. Um, as it turns out, of course, we find that the original tapes of those sessions were in fact destroyed by the Commission, who have claimed and continue to claim that they made that potential destruction clear to the people who came to talk to the Confidential Committee. One of the things I've managed to prove, I think, in, in the piece I wrote is that there was no information whatever about destruction of the tapes. The application form that you got in the information leaflet to speak to the Confidential Committee contains nothing at all about destruction of these tapes. And because Caroline O'Connor very intelligently taped her own session, she's the only person we know of who did, didn't I luck out finding her? Because without that tape, there are various things that could not have been said. I have listened to that tape from start to finish. Nowhere on it do the uh, people interviewing her say that the tape they are making of her uh, testimony is going to be destroyed. So there's bad faith all over the place here. Now, I don't want to imply that people did this on purpose, but there, there are, the whole business of when certain decisions were taken, by whom, uh, is very important in terms of how we know how these 550 people were dealt with. And I suppose the thing we all have to remember is that this commission came into being because of the efforts of survivors and their advocates over many years. And it is supposed to deal with the existential enormity of what happened to these women and children over a long period of time in our country until very recently. So extra special care, you would imagine, would be taken with testimonies like this. Because Caroline O'Connor recorded her own audio of her encounter with the with the committee, and also I think because she read out a written statement um, which she, she brought to that session, it allows us, unlike I think any of the other of the hundreds of testimonies, to do what you did, which is to forensically compare the two. And therefore, through that individual case, to demonstrate what seemed to me to be astonishing failures of, of methodology. Fintan O'Toole in his column this week in the Irish Times points out that, that that some of the elements, they wouldn't happen in the fluffiest celebrity interview in a, in, in a newspaper. The, the mixture of, um, uh, of direct speech and indirect speech, the misrepresentation of what people said. I mean, it's an extraordinary act of, uh, of disrespect, first of all, it seems to me. Yeah, absolutely. And it's it's puzzling, you know. Uh, they, they did have a tape. They could have referred to that. They had a written statement, a very eloquent, as you know, a written statement from Caroline outlining practically everything they needed to know. There, there are a lot of claims in the Confidential Committee report introduction about the fact that this is all in the survivor's own words, when in fact it's exactly the opposite. I mean, it becomes 
Kafkaesque at a certain point that you're making claims that are so clearly demonstrably wrong. Why bother? Uh, you know, her extraordinary testimony, which covers about five or six ordinary pages, the hour-long tape that she, she made with them, is reduced to three par- two paragraphs and three quotes. One of the quotes is correct. One is completely made up. And I had a rush of blood to the head the other night and I thought, oh my God, did I actually miss something on the tape? I'd better listen to it yet again to be sure what I'm saying is correct. And I am correct. They made up an entire quote from Caroline. And then the last one, which deals with the incredibly tragic story of her mother's suicide attempts, is absolutely botched and makes the whole thing look like one suicide attempt collapsed into, into you know, several suicide attempts collapsed into one. So there was no need for any of that. They, they had plenty of verbatim evidence from Caroline to use in their little quotes. But it's also the, the sheer reductive nature of, of creating two paragraphs and three quotes out of this incredibly rich testimony. Uh, and again, the insult to the survivors of finding that what they said has been so reduced, so in this case anyway, misrepresented and in some cases invented. Now, th- we need explanations for that too. Why did they not use the tapes since they had them? Would that not have been the easiest way to, to deal with this? Or was it a rush job where they were relying on notes taken during the session where people can form impressions uh, rather than listen carefully to what somebody is saying? We just don't know. I mean, I suppose my piece is raising a whole lot of questions that we would like answers to. Um, and I cannot see why those answers can't be given, uh, except that, of course, they may be embarrassing answers. But really, that's no excuse. This this is a situation where 550 people are... Uh, uh, and, I, you know, they are re-traumatised by this. And there, there was no training at all for, for the people interviewing uh, survivors in dealing with, with traumatised individuals. Again, in the, the operation in the North, there was extensive training in, in how to deal with people who have been traumatised. Because, I mean, certainly survivors that I've spoken to say this has been incredibly hard. It was hard in the first place to go in to this commission in good faith and tell a difficult story. Then to find that what they did with it was to reduce it and mangle it and misrepresent it is doubly traumatising. So a lot more care should have been taken in this. I suppose the other aspect that, that, that they did not, the Commission didn't engage in, was to acquire any expertise in oral history. Oral history is now a respectable part of the historiographical spectrum. It has to be interrogated carefully. There should be protocols around how the material is gathered. There are ethical considerations about consent and so on. Uh, and it would have benefited the Commission greatly had they had an oral history specialist, like, say, Maura Cronin, who's one of our great oral history specialists, attached to the commission to train the interviewers on how to, to approach all of this. Alas, none of this was done. And we're, we're left with the very sad mess we have at the moment. One of the things, perhaps, in my position, position of ignorance, really, is that shocks and surprises me about this, is that, I mean, this is not the first such commission we've had. We've had a number of them into into industrial schools and Magdalene laundries. I would have imagined foolishly, that processes would have been developed and would have been quite sophisticated at this stage and agreed upon. Um, but that that's not the case. Well, the Ryan Commission had a long and rocky road, as all of you know, and that there was a change of judge in midstream and a lot of difficulty about arranging things. But nonetheless, one of the things that Sean Ryan did, well, two things he did that this commission had not done. One was that he had a methodology section. 
The reason you have a methodology section in any piece of writing that you do is to keep you on the straight and narrow, to say what you're going to do, why you're going to do it that way, right? So it keeps you honest, I suppose. This commission has no methodology section, which is a real mistake. And I think it would have actually kept them very uh, focused on what they were supposed to be doing if they had. So Ryan, at the launch of his own report, which he owned absolutely, gave a press conference. There were journalists there. There were some survivors. There was a fuss about some survivors being excluded. That was a controversy at the time. But nonetheless, he answered questions and did so thereafter once or twice too when when asked to do so. And one of the things he did was to explain his methodology very carefully, including the fact that he held quite a number of public hearings uh, going to the whole business of transparency. Uh, A lot of people, particularly the Clown Project, who have been a wonderful advocacy organisation for survivors of mother and baby homes and Magdalene laundries, um, asked on many occasions on behalf of survivors to have that, that the Commission should hold some public hearings. And they always refused without explanation, as indeed other things were refused without explanation. So, yes, you would expect that we would learn from our mistakes. Um, when did that ever happen? I have to say cynically. Uh, it's not as if this country is renowned for learning from its mistakes. It's why we all need to study a little more history and figure out what we did wrong in the past so that we don't repeat it in the present. But um, this needn't have happened. There, there, there were guidelines, there were examples of what, it, what could be done. It's possible that the Commission of Investigation Act of 2004 is well past its sell-by date now. I think it probably is. That there are other ways of conducting these kinds of investigations, less legalistic. Um, and by the way, the, the, the uh, sort of stuff that's going around at the moment about the redress scheme being threatened if the uh, report is repudiated is not true. I've talked to a couple of lawyers in the last few days who say the redress scheme is completely separate from the report, not dependent on its conclusions, which are another source of anguish and pain to the survivors, um, and could proceed at any time. It's purely a political decision. So it it may, of course, create difficulties in extracting some money from the uh, congregations. That's a separate issue. But a redress scheme could be set up tomorrow, if necessary, by the government to deal with with, uh, these women and children who have been so badly wronged. So pretending, in a way, and I'm sure nobody's doing this uh, purposely, but there is no necessary connection between the conclusions of the report and the establishment of the redress scheme. Could we move to the the report itself, which you're you're highly critical of? I mean, you you point out, and this is obviously not the most important thing, but it's sort of telling, I think, in its own right, how badly written it is, and that seems to speak to a general. I think we can agree a kind of shoddiness might 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 be the right word in its in its delivery and its overall import. But then there are its core conclusions, which were um, were immediately controversial, uh, and some people found them upsetting, and were certainly contentious. I think in that they did seem to. Uh, to play down the role of the church-state nexus in setting up and operating this system for so many years and to play up the um, the the role or the responsibility of individual citizens. Um, now, you mentioned, actually, uh, Derek Scally's book, the, the Best Catholics in the World, in your, in, your, in your piece, and we had Derek on a couple of months ago. And there is an interesting discussion to be had about complicity and, and all those kinds of things, about the, the interrelationship between society at large and these organisations. But you think that that balance is seriously off in this report? Absolutely. I mean, it, it goes against a whole body of historiography 
and knowledge, including a lot of what's said in Derek's book, which is a wonderful book, by the way. It's a pity it wasn't out in time for the commissioners to read it. It might have helped them in uh, coming to some of their conclusions and in their processes. Um, it's There's no doubt whatever that the independent Irish state wanted desperately to have the Catholic Church deeply involved, not just in policy, but in process, in operation of the state. And we have to remember that the Catholic Church ran health, education and so-called welfare services for a very, very long time, starting back in the 19th century and moving right up into towards the end of the 20th century. They did that with the full blessing of the state, uh, with the, the, the active encouragement of the state. But it was their view of how society should operate. And I described it in the piece as a sort of closed feedback loop that if, if your whole life is permeated by this notion of, and it is very extreme puritanical Catholicism, it's not like Mediterranean Catholicism, which is more tolerant and looser in terms of its uh, ideas. I suppose you have a perfect storm when you get the uh, Land Commission carrying out what I sometimes call the real revolution during the revolutionary period, transferring the land of Ireland from landlord to tenant. Uh, between 1891 and 1922, 75% of the land, creating a very conservative Catholic smallholding uh, cohort of society who have a new interest in respectability. Tom Murphy's most hated word, he used to say it with absolute acidity, respectability. So what you get then is uh, matters of property ownership and inheritance. And who does this weigh on most? Daughters. Who provides the solution to this problem? The church with the act of uh, collusion of the state. Um, and of course there was complicity. Like anybody who's seen a John B. Keane play knows that Irish families behaved atrociously in lots of ways towards their families, uh, or, or towards their daughters. Um, but the ideas don't come from nowhere. And to pretend that they did, that this is sort of bottom-up morality being uh, acquiesced in by church and state is just pure nonsense. So no, that doesn't stand up. And it deeply upset not just survivors, but a lot of smart people who think that can't possibly be true. I mean, one of the things that strikes me, and we'll be talking to Jennifer in a little while about the Mary Daly seminar last week, is that the Confidential Committee, its findings did not feed into the overall final report as far as I see it. So it was a combination of the other people who gave testimony, the very small number, the 64 or whatever it was, of of, of um, survivors who testified, plus a range of other what do you call them, stakeholders, interests, including all the religious orders um, and the state, who we gather, um, not surprisingly for Mary Daly, um, was, uh, were very lawyered up uh, and were ready to defend vociferously every point, and including some bizarre points, for example, about that, that mass grave in Tuam and how it came to be in the first place. Um, is it possible or is it likely that that kind of imbalance in the official records provided to the to the committee or what account for that imbalance in the ascription of blame mm, up to a point i think if they if they had made more choices about uh or better choices about who whose actual evidence they would hear uh i.e more people invited to come to the investigation committee noelle brown who many of you will, will know from her media appearances who's an incredibly um articulate and brave survivor um, asked to be invited to the investigation committee and she was refused. So that's one case we know where someone actively tried to go there and couldn't, uh, couldn't get there. 
Um, I suppose, in a way, Hugh, you're touching on the whole business of the uh, one of the great achievements of the Commission, which has to be said. They, they managed to get hold of a whole lot of archival records, which nobody had ever seen before. So, for example, it, it, it is actually a miracle, a, a wonderful miracle, that the registers of admission and discharge into the mother and baby homes still survive intact. They are now, as far as we know, uh, in the custody of Tusla. They should urgently be put into a proper, safe archival repository where no harm can come to them. And that is not to, to denigrate Tusa. I'm sure they do their best, but they do not have an archival repository which is suitable for the storage of these very valuable records. They have been digitised and uh, a copy of, of the, the digital record has been given to the Department of Extensive title that it has now. I keep forgetting how many things it's responsible for. Um, like the Department of Arts, which constantly changes its title to this. There must be a message there somewhere. Um, so they're hugely important. The, any administrative records, which weren't many that they got hold of from the religious congregations, are hugely important too, because they go to the actual operation of the system, the ideology behind it. And we know that some congregations have really rich administrative records, which the Commission didn't necessarily get to see, but they did try. Then we have a whole bunch of fascinating records from the Department of Health as it is now, previously the Department of Health and Local Government, which are the inspectors' reports on these institutions. A lot, a lot of people now have heard of Alice Litster, who was one of the inspectors in the 30s and 40s, and who was quite vocal in her condemnation of some of the conditions she found in the schools. But they go right through the period, and they should have been in the National Archives ages ago, and somebody should have made sure they were there. Now at least they are probably going to make their way into the National Archives. And then, you see, we, we always think survivors looking for identity material, which is a huge issue for most of them. They've been obstructed and blocked from finding information about their own identities for many, many years. Um, they don't just want names and dates. They want context. They're intelligent human beings who want to know what was going on in this place at the time. Those inspectors' reports are a vital part of that context of, of them being able to discover what was seen by an outsider when they came to visit this uh, strange place in the 1940s or 50s or 60s or 70s even. Um, they're important. And the third really important cohort of records never seen before are GlaxoSmithKline. Uh, the constituent parts of whom were the people who carried out the vaccine trials in the homes in the late 60s, early 70s. This is a matter of some importance to quite a number of survivors who believe that they were included in those vaccine trials and may have suffered injury as a result. They remarkably, uh, the, the, the commission was charged with making a proper archival catalogue of all the records it saw. The catalogue of the GlaxoSmithKline records is, I won't say it's useless, but in many cases there are no dates. They, they have very small descriptions of what the files contain, and they did not scan these files. They've gone back to their original owners, uh, and there is no indication that anyone else will ever see them. And this is a huge problem in terms of historiography. If you get privileged access to particular records and you write a number of conclusions based on what you've seen, who is going to be able to test your assertions if they can't also see the records? I mean, this is historiography 101. So are people going to be able to see the, uh, the, the records of the religious orders in whatever redacted format is, is decided upon? Are they going to be able to see the records of the vaccination corporations? We don't know. But historians need to make a fuss about that because 
yes, there's some really valuable material that has been accessed here by the, uh, the commission, but we're not sure that anyone else would be able to see it. You make the point, well, you make, you make a number of points towards, towards the end. One is that perhaps we should look at this report as something that can be built on to address some of the questions which you've just mentioned as well. Is there anything in the, in, the, in the shorter term, though, in the report because of the way in which it has offended, um, caused real hurt to some of the people directly affected by these that, that need to be withdrawn in some way or changed in some way? Or is that even possible or feasible in your view? Well, again, I'm not a lawyer, but there are very good lawyers working with the Land Project who are looking at precisely that question now. Um, there's a lot of very valuable material in the report. Some of the historians did very good work. Uh, and very interesting work. Alas, that work was ignored in the conclusions of the report. So, I mean, my the minimalist approach to this would be to withdraw the conclusions that the report reached in, in respect of abuse not suffered by victims, no forced adoptions, and church and state not being responsible for this incarceral system. Getting rid of those would, would satisfy a lot of people. And in fact, those, those rec- conclusions themselves would be profoundly changed if the testimony of the Confidential Committee were taken into account. Which, by the way, the Commission had a perfect right to do. It's in their original terms of reference. That particular phrase has strangely vanished from the final report. So they had an option of including what, what material they got from the Confidential Committee in their conclusions. They chose not to do so. Mary Daly told us it would have taken hundreds of hours of work. There was 11 million left in the budget at the end of this process. They only spent half their money. It might have been worthwhile spending that 11 million on doing precisely the job that that needed to be done. Um, The other thing is, of course, the confidential committee. So you've got the conclusions. You have a daft recommendation as well, which is no redress should be paid to anyone who went into a mother and baby home after 1973. Why is 1973 a magic date? It's the date when the unmarried mother's allowance was introduced due to the wonderful work of second wave feminism in Ireland in the 1970s. Now, anybody will tell you that hardly anyone in the country knew about this for quite a long time. So just making that a cut off date is both cruel and daft. It's not logical. So there's a if you wanted to, you could pick and choose a whole lot of things that you could dismiss. And something will have to be done about the Confidential Committee testimony. It is wonderful that the backup tapes have survived and proven to be viable after the Commission successfully destroyed the originals. Uh, And those are now safe. And I know from talking to some of my survivor chums yesterday, their subject access requests for their own testimony are now starting to be answered and they are receiving copies of their tapes. So that at least is an incredible cohort of hundreds and hundreds of hours of tape recording of original testimony that survives is very valuable. I'm not sure what should be done about that, but whatever it is, it has to be in consultation with the survivors, as so little has been so far. The other thing, because I know you probably want to get on now, Hugh, is it's very important that a new commission of inquiry be established into the whole area of adoption, boarding out, fostering children sent to industrial schools from the mother and baby homes. Um, This is an issue that is still incredibly important for a lot of survivors today. These were mother and baby homes. The babies were born there. They are the people today who are are advocating strongly for their right to have access to identity information about themselves. But again, 
contextual information also. Uh, it looks as if uh, Minister Gorman is going to introduce a very uh, different adoption and tracing bill uh, in the Iraq. This and full credit to him for doing so. Um, there was a Supreme Court decision in 1998 that has bedeviled this issue ever since. Uh, but there must always have been ways around it. As it turns out, GDPR, the hated GDPR that so much of us complain about, has turned out to be our saviour in relation to identity records for survivors. Uh, it gives an absolute right to, to identity information to all citizens. So another commission, this is a way to make amends for the, the mess that went with this. Set up another commission. Forget about the Commission of Investigations Act of 2004. Establish new, much less judicial, more human rights focused guidelines for running this and do a proper commission of investigation into the whole adoption stroke identity issue and give people a chance to have their say, consult with them properly and let's try and get over this very poor uh, episode that we've just witnessed. Katrina Crow, thanks very much for joining us. Thank you. And I'm joined now by Pat Leahy and Jennifer Bray. Jennifer, as I said at the start, you attended that seminar with Mary Daly, the Oxford University online seminar last week. Um, what was it like? Yeah, um, I, what was it like? Good question. I, it was illuminating, um, but also not because there are so many questions. Um, it was quite informal, I suppose, in the way um, it was conducted because obviously it's a you know an academic event, um, you know, this is Professor Mary Daly kind of with her talking to her peers and um, it certainly wouldn't be what it wouldn't be confrontational. Um, but obviously it's caused a whole, you know, load of problems um, across the board for survivors, um, for the people who are involved in this, for the government. Um, and I think like I outlined in a piece that I did last week, kind of the, the most important details of what was said. And obviously we know that the thrust of the problem which has emerged is that people believe and, and from her comments that evidence that was given to the confidential committee um, by survivors was effectively just kept there in a bubble of its own um, and that it wasn't, I suppose, incorporated um, and that it didn't really have uh, an influence on the, on the main body of the report and the findings, which obviously is a massive issue. Um, you know, and when she was talking about the workings of the commission, I think she was kind of at pains to, to point out what she was saying are legal constraints um, that the commission was facing uh, in its in its work. And she mentioned a number of times the terms of reference. So they're very lengthy. Um, I think she described them as incredible and I'm not in a good way. Um, you know, and she said any displeasure basically that people may have uh, at the report needs to be seen through that prism effectively of the regulations that they were operating under. You know, she gave um, she gave an example of strong pushback that the commission received from religious orders and she talked about how they needed to be and her words were ultra careful um, and she said if the report reads as legalistic uh, if it doesn't include some evidence that people gave to the confidential inquiry there's a reason why that's not there it's effectively saying that it's a different uh, I suppose it's a different structure that if survivors wanted to come into that arm of the committee they would be subjected to more rigorous questioning um, but you know be that as it may uh, as the event kind of uh, developed, because it was a Q&A between, you know, the hosts and between Professor Daly, uh, everybody else was obviously just there to watch. But there was a chat function down the side of, you know, in Zooms where you can ask questions and whatnot. 
And there were some really interesting questions coming in there. And that's where we've seen some of the most telling comments come from. So, you know, one of the one of the things that really struck me was a woman who wrote in that Q&A uh, function about her experience. And she said that she identified her testimony uh, in two places in the confidential committee report because there were 14 identifying factors, she said, in each piece. And, and she knew, she said, it was me. Um, she said, however, despite this, uh, her account was uh, littered with inaccuracies and misrepresentations, which changed the context and the accuracy of her story. Uh, and the response to that was very interesting because it wasn't very clear. But Professor Daly effectively said, you know, w- women gave evidence to the confidential committee that was treated and incorporated into their own committee report. So stayed basically in that bubble, like I said. And then she said, and I'll I'll quote her, she said, it was never brought within the, and then she kind of paused, and she said, I mean, writing, those writing the chapter on, for example, Bethany, would have looked at what had come into the confidential committee about Bethany, see did it flag any issues that they might address. But beyond that, the incorporation of evidence given by somebody who had been in Bethany into the confidential report was left basically to them. Um, And, you know, she then said that I do think running the two side by side, which is the investigation arm and the confidential committee, uh, which was not our decision, was not a wise idea, um, which surprised a lot of people, I suppose, to hear her admit that kind of so bluntly because it raises questions about the structure of it from the very beginning, you know, the most basic way that this commission was uh, configured. Um, and, you know, there were other kind of comments that maybe haven't got as much attention because they're, you know, they're not part of the, the they're not a series, I suppose, talking to, and I've talked to a couple of survivors and, you know, working on the story over the last couple of days, she talked about one stage how even the evidence that they were getting from women, she said, the strange thing is that a lot of the evidence, the amount of time we spent listening to people, a lot of it was very moving and interesting, but an awful lot of it was how I found my mother, how I didn't find my mother, how I found my child, how I didn't find my child. She said an awful lot of it was not particularly within our terms of reference. So I think those comments have upset survivors as well who definitely saw themselves as going in and telling their history, what happened to them, uh, not going in and, you know, just talking randomly about the rest of their life. Um, So, you know, those kind of comments uh, upset people as well. And um, there was two other points as well that um, Katrina uh, hit on there. She was talking about the methodology. um, And this was a question that came up during the event. And her response, uh, Professor Daly's response, again, um, very telling. So the, the entire transcript, I should say, of this event has been published. Um, I don't know whether you've had a chance to look at it, Hugh. Um, and it's published by the Clan Project. Um, and so you, people can go and see for themselves, you know, what their response was. So she was asked, you know, what is what happened with the methodology? How did you set it out? And she said, uh, you you know, we could have set out a methodolo- methodological chapter, no question about that. But that's effectively it. Um, and when she was asked about you know, incorporating the evidence of survivors into that main report, as we talked about, she effectively said, we could have done that too, but it would have taken a very long time. It would have taken hundreds of hours of rereading and collating testimony. Uh, and, you know, obviously that's another issue. So they're kind of the main issues as I saw them, as they've played out over the last couple of days. Pat, where does this go from here? Well, I think the matter rests, at least in part, with government now, and there's likely to be a discussion at Cabinet about it this morning. It seems to me that there are two issues facing the government. The first is the the perceived shortcomings in the report and the processes 
which um, led to it. And these are not just from people who didn't like the conclusions uh, of, of the report. There are, it has been established through the critiques of people like uh, Katrina Crow and, uh, and others. There are very significant methodological and procedural flaws in the way the Commission went uh, in doing its business. And I think they require, at the very least, answers, um, if, if, if not remedies uh, uh, at this stage. The second issue, uh, I suppose, in, in the light of those questions for the government, and I think this is the issue that you'll see government trying to concentrate on, is how to record and honour the testimony uh, of the survivors who feel that it, that, that was not what happened to it in, in, the, in the, both in the commission report and, um, and in the dealings they had with the commission that, uh, that led up to that. I think the government, as I say, will want to concentrate on that sort of, on, 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 on the second issue. And there is talk about incorporating the, uh, the, the testimony of the survivors in, you know, memorial projects and, uh, and, and so forth to give it the, you know, to give it the status and the respect uh, that many people feel uh, it, it deserves. But frankly, I'm not sure that government will get away with that sort of, you know, focus on uh, on moving things forward now when there remain so many questions uh, about what has, uh, what has just happened. There is a very strong public push for a repudiation uh, of the report. I, I cannot see how that happens from within government. Now, I think Katrina Crow was right about the um, in, in her criticism of this idea uh, that has come from government and upon which um, Jen has, has reported that repudiating the report would create uh, a risk to the um, the planned redress scheme for uh, uh, for survivors. That that's simply not the case. The redress scheme is an ex gratia scheme and could be done without reference um, to uh, to to the report. At the same time, I find it difficult to see. And I spoke to some people about this uh, last night, and their message very much was that the line is um, you know the line from government is unchanged. There isn't a question of repudiation and I think that it would set a precedent that people in government would be very very wary of to um, to simply repudiate the report at the same time uh, at the same time there is a very strong desire in government for the members of the commission to come before an Oroctus, uh, an Oroctus committee and to give an account of uh, of how they went about um, how they went about compiling the report and an explanation for some of the things that have so infuriated survivors up until now. The members of the commission have been um, have refused outright to do that. They've not been taking questions, but I think that position is certainly weakened by Professor Daly's appearance at the Oxford seminar and. And, you know, it's very clear what government ministers right up to and including the Taoiseach have been saying in public that they want them to come uh, before a committee uh, or some other forum and answer questions about it. And I think we can presume that if they are saying those sort of things in public, then the pressure in private from the top of government 
towards the commissioners to, uh, to come and answer questions about it is probably doubly intense. But of course, they can't make them. And that remains up to uh, the commissioners themselves. I mean, this question of repudiation, Jen, obviously the, the broad thrust of the overall report, as Katrina laid it out, that the question of how much responsibility should go to church and state is contested, is highly contested. And that's as, as may be. But the other part, the, 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 the element of the report based upon the confidential um, committee is more than contested. It's clearly flawed, both in methodology and outcome, and surely can't be allowed to stand. And in a way, hasn't the Commission and perhaps the government dodged a bullet here? Because through its own inefficiency, it failed to carry out the process, which it failed to tell people it was going to carry out, but it intended to carry out, which was the destruction of the audio tapes. Because it retains them, it can go back and create the kind of transcripts of those, as Katrina mentioned earlier, check with the survivors that those transcripts are accurate and those transcripts can then be put on the record as an accurate record of what actually occurred. Yeah, and, you know, ever since the final report of the Commission was published in the in these months since, since January, many survivors and people who gave evidence to the Confidential Committee have come forward to say that their evidence has been misrepresented or there are inaccuracies, things are taken out of context, things are cut, chopped, put together... Um, and the overall picture is not as it should be. Um, and, you know, I think Katrina also mentioned there the issue about how it's written. You know, it's, it's not very well presented. Um, it's It sort of seems like it's almost a bit of an afterthought in some parts. Um, and that's a huge issue for the government. But I suppose the key thing here is they will want to be very mindful uh, of the impact this has on the women uh, and, and survivors and people who gave evidence to the committee because... You know, I think it was Alan Kelly in the doll last week who said that what had happened at the Oxford event and the comments that were made had re-traumatised survivors. So I think the first port of call will be if you're talking about, you know, a future strand of work that might look at this again, um, and those tapes that you mentioned as well, um, that that will go through a process that will be acceptable to the survivors in question. Um, and it seems to me that right now that's a very much um, an open question and very much like there's, it doesn't seem clear what kind of path that you would use to do so. You know, there was talk, I think Pat mentioned, of maybe a Noroctus committee looking at that through a confidential strand, I think is how it was described. But there's no agreement on that at the moment. Um, and I think that will be a very sensitive issue that the government particularly will want to make sure they tread lightly on uh, if we're talking about how to treat that evidence and and how to respect it um, while not re-traumatising survivors. Um, my last question, or actually two linked last questions, if you if if you wouldn't mind, Pat. One is, Katrina makes the point in her article that the, the, the report is quite weak on failing to call on the religious orders to make public to the people of Ireland their records of all the events that transpired. They are technically private organisations, but they were clearly part of the services provided by the states. And, you know, even if they can't be legally compelled, a stronger moral case could be put to them to to release those those records. And that would be particularly useful, I think, for the other part of what Katrina was saying towards the end, which is that this process is clearly not over. And there are a number of further investigations in the form of some commission of inquiry, which we'll need to embark upon now. Yeah, you know, um, I remember going back, Jesus, 20 years um, now since I started um, writing about the then planned deal uh, 
between the state and the religious orders about residential institutions. And since that time, the uh, the response of the church and religious bodies has often been narrow, legalistic and defensive of their own interests. It seems to me that that is not a strategy that has played particularly well for uh, for the church and for the religious orders. And a more open and accommodating and less defensive stance on the part of the church and uh, its constituent bodies might be a wise move for them. Whether that happens or not uh, in this regard, uh, I, I suppose, remains to be seen. On the question of, you know, where you go from here, I think that I find it difficult to see how another commission of inquiry along the lines that Katrina was suggesting a while ago would be at least the first port of call for government. I mean, what Katrina seemed to be suggesting was a different type of commission of inquiry, which I suppose would require new legislation and that. And, you know, we can all see, you know, the sort of timescales that would be involved there. I think that the survivors and, uh, you know, perhaps the public will require something a bit more immediate to be done um, uh, in, in, in this instance and something that might go down the route of, uh, you know, official memorials and, uh, and, and, you know, answers to the questions of how do you institutionalize the, uh, you know, the, the, the testimony that has been given? How do you create a resource that is there for, uh, for this and future generations to undergo the, sort of coming to terms with these aspects, these kind of darker aspects of, uh, of, of Irish history. That, you know, maybe a, that may be a broader sort of undertaking than, than one which would be confined simply to, to, to this instance. But I think that what you are likely to see in the coming weeks is conversations, uh, more public conversations coming out of government about, uh, about that sort of thing. I think what the government would be very careful to do, and perhaps this would be the first obstacle to get over, is getting the cooperation and endorsements of the survivors in that process. And it is very clear that trust between the state and many of the survivors has been hugely damaged by uh, everything that has happened since the publication, uh, by the publication of this report and many of the, many of the things that have, that have happened since. And it is not clear as to whether that trust can be rebuilt as long as that report stands. And I think that is the sort of bind that the government now finds itself in uh, when it comes to deal with this. We'll see what happens. Thanks very much to Jennifer and Pat and thanks Special thanks, actually, to Katrina Crowe for, for talking to us earlier. Thanks also to our producer, Suzanne Brennan, and our engineer, JJ Vernon. We're going to be back very soon, but remember, you can mail us with your thoughts at politicspodcast at irishtimes.com. Until the next time, thanks very much indeed for listening. 